Hi, I'm Francisca, and you are listening to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Thank you so much for reaching out with all your comments and feedback regarding our last episode with Carly Hadash, all about mikvah. I'm just so happy and thrilled with how that episode resonated with you. So keep reaching out. Yes, you. Send me a WhatsApp, voice note, or a message, and let's connect. On this episode, we're talking to Jessica Kupferman, the founder and co-founder of She Podcasts, an online Facebook community group for women podcasters. We also have a personal connection. They will be hosting an event in October called She Podcasts Live, and I'm so excited to be one of the speakers at that event. I really hope some of you join me there. It's going to be so much fun. On this episode, we discuss ways to grow a podcast, and one of the things I think you can do to help out is if you enjoy the Francisca Show podcast, you can tell just one friend, and if everyone just tells one friend to check it out, then we will double the numbers. Isn't that fun? That's one way. You Another way, you could send a referral my way. I'm a podcast coach, podcast producer, and I help creatives make money. And one more thing, in case you're thinking that this podcast is not for you because it's one of my podcast slash business entrepreneurship episodes, you definitely want to stick around until the end because Jessica opens up and shares a really personal experience. So here we go. Enjoy the show. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on today, and I'll tell everyone listening why. Well, there are two main reasons besides for me just being a huge fan. Number one, thank you. You are someone I knew as a an expert in podcasting when I started podcasting and I've been in your group for a couple of years and I've just seen you all this time. And then number two, once I did find the courage to reach out, we had a family connection. So, yes. That made it all so much better. Jessica, tell us what our relationship is. On the Cosman side, on the Jewish side. Yeah. On the Jew side. Okay. This is Jewish geography 101, right? If you know a Jew, you probably know someone that knows that Jewish person. Um, if you are Jewish, usually that's how it works. So, so in this case, the way it works is her last name is Cosman. And I grew up in Frederick, Maryland, where there was like 50 Jewish families and one rabbi who was Orthodox, even though the congregation was conservative. So his name was Rabbi Morris Cosman, and he taught me from age four on. He did my bar mitzvah, my sister's bar mitzvah, my baby naming for my first baby. Um, and then, you know, and, and I mean, honestly, I thought he was 80 years old when I met him. So I, he just he either didn't age or he aged all at once. I don't know. It was very confusing. Um, but he had this amazing voice and he was like, a, he, he was, I mean, when you're little and you, and you have an enjoyable ex religious experience, it, it really does shape your entire life. So like, I feel like my entire religious beliefs are mostly shaped by my relationship with him and his wife and everything that they offered to the Jewish community. So you, fast forward a million years later, when 
Francisca reached out to me to talk to me about promoting her course. And I saw her name was Cosmin. And actually, um, I thought, well, that's a weird coincidence. But it was actually looking at you and wondering, you know, because you were slightly conservatively dressed, that possibly you would be modern Orthodox. And so I thought, well, I mean, that would make sense because Rabbi Cosmin had like 11, probably seven kids, right? But it seemed like 11. (laughs) (laughs) seven seven children. (laughs) And so, yeah, so it turns out that Francisca is married to the youngest. I'm not going to say child. It's grandchild, right? So not the youngest. The son is the sixth, but my husband's number two. And that's your father-in-law. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So one of the rabbi's children is Francisca's father-in-law. And that's how we know it. It's sort of like a yeah, so the rabbi was her grandfather-in-law. And um, yeah, it's a fun, it's a very fun connection because it's like one of the few people I've never in my life met another person that had him in common with me that didn't go to Hebrew school with me. That's why it's amazing to me because you're the first person that can give me, I mean, not just this connection, but but I mean, but this is an important one, right? Because so like it's, she's the first person that ever had the last name Cosman that was actually related to my rabbi, who, by the way, sounded like Neil Diamond in a jazz in the jazz singer. Like that's how he <laughs> sang. That's what I grew up with is like, imagine Neil Diamond, but like in an old man's body. That's what my experience was like. It was amazing. He's he amazing. Amazing. So yeah. it would have been amazing yeah, to amazing. have him yeah. on the podcast because he was talented in so many different areas. Yes. But I mean, we can do it, right? Because you go, Rabbi, how are you doing? And you would go, perfect. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway. So I just want to introduce you a little bit more to our audience because you sound so casual, but really you are... <laughs> Super, super cool in the online space. You are the co-host and co-founder of She Podcast. And you have over 14,000 women podcasters and over 55,000. Actually, now it's almost 20. It's like 20,000 women now. But that's, I mean, it changes Changes all the time. All the time. Well, you have lots lots of women. Let's just say a lot. A lot of women. That you are empowering and helping in the podcasting space with your brand. You're also the internet bad girl with an odd amount of experience in way too many software services. So I love the combo of women empowerment and tech. So first, let's start with how you got started in this to begin with. The pursuit of fame and glory, which is, you know, such a common tale. But um, I had an online graphic design social media consulting business, and I wanted to grow it online because I was very tired of consulting local people in Delaware. So I wanted to sort of branch out and and make it a little more global. So um, I looked at the podcast, the business podcast, to see who I could pitch to be on their show. And it was all men, white men, young white men. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But if you're, and I mean, I was young at the time, but like I did notice that their guest list was like the, all of themselves. So like this person would be on this show and this would be on this show. And, you know, it was either that or Tim Ferriss. They were all sort of like interviewing one another. And there were, and I thought, well, they're never going to have me on because I'm just like a girl. I mean, I'm humorous, of course, but I'm not well known enough for them to choose me, especially if they're just choosing each other over and over. So I started my own women's interview show. At the time, it was called Lady Business Radio, and I named it that for a bunch of reasons, but mostly because it, Lady Business can cover a lot of stuff, everything personal, everything businessy, 
I could go anywhere with it and it would be safe. So um, I did that for about a year and a half. And then um, to make a very long story short, I went to a conference where all these gentlemen were hoping to grow my show at the time. Once I had had it started, uh, you know, ambition takes over again and I want it to grow and take over the world. So I go to a media conference where these gentlemen are there and I find that their advice, you know, when questioned, when I meet them is not helpful. I mean, just to, you know, for lack of a better term, it just wasn't helpful, right? Like I say, how do I grow my show? And the, and the, and the guy says, well, how long is your show? And I say an hour and he says, well, make it cut it in half, make it two episodes. You double your downloads. I was like, no, because it's the same listeners though. I don't want the same people listening twice. I want double the, that seemed obvious to me. Right. So I was just like, this is, you know, or it would be like, well, you know, I mean, you know, when you ask a man, how do you tell someone you don't want them on your show? They look at you like you're from Mars. Right. But women <sighs> don't just go, no, thanks. We're all set. Like, we don't do that. We have we we're hardwired to care about, you know, the community and keeping relationships alive and stuff like that. So women need different strategy for you know, having boundaries, but, and being polite, but still getting the things that they need and want in life. So, um, I came back from that conference. I started a group called women who podcast and my co, uh, my co-founder Elsie Escobar, who I did know from an online class. She, um, was so excited and she was like, I've always wanted to do this. And, you know, I'd love to do a podcast with you. Would you be interested? And I mean, I was like, who me? She's also huge in the podcast. Yes. Space, by the she way. has worked for a podcast hosting company, Libsyn, almost since they opened, right? Like 2006. So, so we started a podcast. The group started to grow like crazy. Eventually, um, I convinced her that we should do a conference. We did our first conference in 2019. Um, and then, of course, we had to postpone last year's conference in 2020. So we're doing our second one this fall in Scottsdale. First one was in Atlanta, Georgia. I would love to know behind the scenes of a super successful women's event. What goes into this? As far as what goes into the event. So just to preface this, because I've already sort of indicated this, but I want to make it clear. I am a person that gets an idea and then says, how hard can it be? And then I do it. And then I'm like, wow, that can be really hard. And event planning. So, so here's how it actually started in my head. Um, I said to my, like, someone asked me on an interview similar to this, if you had a million dollars, what would you do? And I had already been tossing around the idea of an event. I'd already asked Elsie about it. She didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I was asked this question. And I, the answer is, and has always been, if I had a million dollars, I would throw a ginormous party and invite everyone I knew to come and hang out with each other. Because I love that. I just want everyone to enjoy each other the way I enjoy each person. And then in that instant, I was like, I've got to have this conference. I have to have this conference. Um, so I went back to her and I was like, you know, I think this is what I'm supposed to do like with my life or at least right now. And she said, OK. Um, and so we made a deal sort of about who would take care of what. And that was that. Um, I had a con like a consultant. So a gentleman who does the conference podcast conference called Podfest. His name is Chris Kremitzos and he is a very good friend. And he helped me by giving me, here's the person that you'll use for your AV. And here's the person you'll use for pipe and drape. And here's how you get a hotel. And here's a person that will help you, you know, negotiate the contract. And, and then he helped me sort of market it by telling me what emails needed to go out when he sort of babysat me through it, um, which was great. 
it was great for a couple of reasons. One, because I really did not know what I was doing. And two, because, and this is not because he's a man, although it might be by, by having a babysitter, it really helped me realize like how I want to be different because he has a formula that he uses and it's similar. It's similar to formula. The podcast movement uses as well, which is another huge podcasting conference. And some of that formula works and some of it doesn't some, some of execution was great. Some of it made me wildly uncomfortable. So this year I hired an event planner to take care of the details that bog me down. Like um, if the room block isn't working or if this conference room isn't set properly, you know, things that I probably have no business dealing with, but, but for last year, all of that was me. Every time someone had a problem with a ticket, every time someone wanted to bring someone extra, if they had travel issues, me, 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 it all came to me. And by the time the conference rolled around, like I felt brain damaged. Like my, my brain just couldn't hold it all in. I was forgetting normal words for things like fork. Like I, you know, like I, like it was like having mom brain, but worse. Cause I didn't know if it would ever come back. I was just like, okay. So, um, so a lot goes into it. Um, you definitely, the administrative work was the part that I, there's two things that I thought was the hardest. Administrative work is very, very hard because, well, first I didn't know it would be more than two, 300 people, but it was like 700 people bought tickets for my first year, which is an amazing problem to have. But it also meant a lot of customer service that I didn't expect. And so it took me longer than it should to answer people's questions about what level ticket they have and if they could transfer it or get a refund. Um, also that first year, we I did a Kickstarter to see if the community would buy tickets so that I could make sure I could fund the event because I wasn't going to go broke on a whim. So I did a Kickstarter um, for 25000 and we raised fifty. But then, so so it, this is sort of an it's like a logistical nightmare, right? Because because they bought tickets through Kickstarter, then they applied to be speakers. Then, as a speaker, they got a free ticket. Then they were like, "Well, I already have this ticket, so can I get a refund for it?" Well, no, because that's a Kickstarter donation. It's a ticket, but also I can't give it back to you because it's Kickstarter. I would lose the whole thing. So anyway, it was a mess. Plus, also like. Then I had to take all those Kickstarter tickets and put them into Eventbrite where the list of attendees was. It was an administrative disaster. It, it doesn't have to be that way this year, but last year it was so, so terrible. The other part is something that bothers me personally, but doesn't like, but wouldn't someone else. But as a kid, I was bullied quite a bit. I was excluded and bullied for various reasons. If you take a look at me, you can see probably it's because I'm a nerd with glasses and, you know, in 1983, where like Revenge of the Nerds was really popular and everyone was a jock. I'm like the only Jew in a five mile radius that these people know, you know, with short curly hair, big mouth, glasses, whatever. Um, and I was younger than everyone. So I was probably more immature and probably annoying. As a result, I don't like to exclude people. I like people to feel included whenever they're around me. If I'm going to dinner and someone says, hey, where are you going? I almost always say, we're going to dinner, want to come. Because I don't even want to tell them I'm doing something that they're not invited to. It makes me so uncomfortable. So you can imagine how I would feel to have 200 speaker, you know, like applications and not be able to choose them all. I was like devastated. It was so hard for me to tell people, no, not this time or no, this topic is this or that. So, so that devastation was one part of it that was Something hard for me. And then a male podcast 
host who wouldn't have never, to do. Right, they don't care. They don't care at all. Because I asked, because I'm friends with not just Chris, but the guys who do podcast movement. I'm like, how do you do this? He was like, do what? He goes, you have 200 applications. I have 800. I don't care what they say. And I was like, fair enough. Fair enough. You know, I mean, I can I can get that. I get that now. We have 400 this year. And, and you know, if the pitch isn't perfect, you throw it out because there's too many that are. Right. So you don't need to waste time deliberating, although I'm sure I will. So that's part of it. And the other part is the ones that were chosen, some of them got very fussy with me about having a plus one there for free or being able to get paid or are, you know, can they bring their own photographer or they can only do this date instead of this date after I've already made the schedule. And I like, after what I went through just to choose them, like I I felt very hurt that I would be given a hard time for anything after that. Like I, I, I took it very personally that someone would be unhappy with the fact that like they didn't get a refund on their Kickstarter. You know, it was just a whole bunch of stuff. And I was just like, I'm losing my faith in humanity. Like what is life? I thought I was doing something like, you know, I was letting people speak. I mean, I know that technically event planners are supposed to pay speakers, but this community is self-taught and self-run and, and there are enough people who will speak for free and teach for free out of the goods of their hearts that I should not have to deal with. Like I need my $150 back. Like you're part of this community. I need that for it. Just, it just, it just bothered me more than it probably should have because I'm me like Elsie, she would have been like, whatever, like anybody else would have been, you know, be able to do it in a business way. But this is my first year. And I felt very intruded upon with other people's opinions about how they should be treated. Cause I was just doing my best. I just wanted everybody to be happy. Like I said, I just wanted a big party. I just want everyone to feel included. I don't want to hurt people, exclude people, look cheap to people. Like all of that was extra that I hadn't expected. That's a very long answer to your question. I apologize. Well, I love it. I would just like to comment and say that I think that's part of the artist's journey very often from going from a place of passion and impact to how do we practically do this so I don't get stepped on all over, (laughs) mushed, kebabbled, challenged, Mm -hmm. made, and squeezed out, (laughs) shamata on the other side so you can do it again. Yeah. yeah. We. My heart was a schmata at the end of it. It's a, it's a perfect word to describe that. Absolutely. Well, thank you to Yiddish. But on this podcast, <laughs> we talk a lot about artists and how they're taken advantage of. Yeah. But yeah. learning the boundaries right. so you can provide platforms for people to speak, to learn, to entertain. We have to create those boundaries and learn a little bit from the men on how they care a little bit less of what people think of them. The best thing I did for those boundaries is hiring an event planner. I didn't know that I was going to hire an event planner. I just wanted someone to help me with some of the admin stuff that I thought, you know, should have done events before. But I have a friend from Jewish Girls Summer Camp that has done events for American Express and all these big companies in New York City. And she had been furloughed from her most recent position because of the pandemic. So I asked if she was free and she said, yes. And it's absolutely perfect because it's perfect for two reasons. One, when you work with someone that you know really well, that you love, there's none of that. I don't like the way she's talking to me. Her tone of voice makes it sound like she's mad. Like she and I can just be like, ah, you know, whatever. And we never get mad because we know the other person. It's just like, it's an unconditional friendship, I guess, which means you can be yourself in work, which is rare. The second reason is that because she's not in podcasting, she gives zero F's about whether or not someone has had hurt feelings or not. In her head, you either buy a ticket or you go away. 
Right. Whereas for me, if I have a personal relationship with that person, I'm more likely to be like, okay, I'll bend the rules for you because our friendship, it means something to me. Like she doesn't have to care about any of that. And it's perfect. She can be like a a filter, an extra layer. Yeah. A layer. Yes. But a layer, a non-caring layer, which I think is important in that, in that part of the job, you know? Did you make a profit the first time? Yes. We did make a profit the first time. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a person's healthy year-long salary. And because I took a, like Christopher and I both took stipend throughout the year um, that was ours. So at the end of it, we may not have had a lot left over, but because we paid ourselves a salary, like you can consider that revenue. Now let's talk about the idea of women's club and segregation, what, how that is influencing things because the podcast movement or podfest is not just for men, it's for everyone. And they might have women targeted workshops or events. They do. I'm hosting one this year. <laughs> there you go. They're <laughs> they're including and by creating something that's all girls club, we are excluding. I think it's important. I mean, just be- especially because of the way that our political <sighs> labor is right now and like the world that we live in. It's true that podcast movement and PodFest are not um, exclusive, that they, of course, welcome women and diversity and accessibility. Um, And we ourselves are hosting the Women's Networking event at Podcast Movement this year, uh, which is a sponsorship that we pay for. But I mean, I am happy to do it. I want to do it. I think it's a good funnel for our event. Um, Our event is only is not, I wouldn't say it's women and non-binary only. What I would say is that the content was curated for that audience, but anyone who wants to come can come. And I joked a lot last year about how, you know, I'm not going to check at the doors to whether or not you do or don't have the proper equipment to join this event. You know, like I, like you can come, men can come, they can sponsor, they, they can't speak. The only thing is that men cannot speak sponsor or no sponsor, like there will be no men speakers because they can literally speak at every other event and they get more chance than, than most women do. So, sorry. So I try not to, um, I don't try not to, they just, they're not going to speak. Um, they will be women only or women are non-binary. Um, so I mean, men have said that, like, why do you need this or that? And I think, I mean, there's, at first, for me, the reason why I wanted it to be just for women was aesthetic. I felt like when you, it's like the difference between radio and podcast, right? When you're creating content for everyone, it really appeals to, I don't want to say no one, but it's not specifically appealing to me. It's navy blue or gray or, you know, like the t-shirts are always like a men's size shaped shirt with a, you know, gender neutral, AKA slightly masculine look, you know, and I don't want that at my conference. I want a cool shirt with an inspirational saying. And, you know, I want the, I want, yeah, but I also want one femininity. I want when I, when I walk into the place, I want to feel pampered and special and pretty and not hustle, 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 hustle. And I think that that's, normal for most conferences, not just podcast conferences, but I want, I wanted a different feel and a different look. And then I also, um, what I found after the first conference was that women and, you know, that the attendees were very grateful because it felt safe to ask questions, which is one of the reasons I started the group in the first place. It's not that it's not safe in a mixed environment. It's that 
you're more self-conscious. It's safe. Of course, it's safe. But when a woman stands up in a room full of mixed company and asks a question, they immediately think half the men in this room think I'm an idiot. It's just what we're kind of like taught to think is that she's talking too long. She's too hysterical. She's too passionate. She's taking up too much time. Like there's none of that at my conference. You stand up, you ask your question, and you can feel the whole room supporting you and your journey to find this answer. You can't necessarily feel that mixed company for whatever reason, for whatever reason. Um, it also, I think in mixed company, there's a an unspoken hierarchy about not just between men and women, but who is the most experienced, who has the least experience, who's been doing this forever versus who is just starting. And I think that's sort of natural because I think testosterone is meant to sort of inspire survival of the fittest in whatever shape or form it does. That's just male energy, you know, and there's still some testosteronic, if that's a word, energy at our event. But um, for the most part, it's an even playing field. The, the, you know that the experienced people there are there to help the less experienced people because that's what happens in our group. And so as a result, that's what happens in person. And if you're in the other groups, the PodFest Facebook group, the podcast movement group, podcasters in general, male or female, have a lot to say, right? They have a lot of opinions. They're not always in a good mood. Some people can feel dismissed or you know, or hustled or made to feel stupid or made to, you know, feel like they should just be doing things one way because that's the right way. And we try not to facilitate those types of feelings in our group. So our conference is very similar. And I think if, I think if there's not mindful attempt to have a good vibe for lack of, I mean, these are all just words I'm sort of making, but like, you know, in our group, we specifically work hard to have this vibe. And I think that if you don't do that, it will have whatever vibe it has. There's nothing wrong with that, but. Femininity. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I know you personally lived through and survived personal trauma. And I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it on the podcast, but I would love for you to share what it was and how that has changed your life. So your question was whether or not I would share it, which of course I will, and how it's impacted my life, which is, well, I'll just share it with the audience and we'll see how it goes. We do a lot of this on the podcast, which is why it, it brings depth to people and to show that stuff happens in people's lives. And when stuff happens to people who are in the public eye, it's beautiful when they're able to share because there's so much to learn from the experience and there's so much I agree. community and love that happens when it's talked about. I agree. I 100% agree. Let's just start at the end and work our way to the beginning. So the end is that my daughter um, was an addict. She was a drug addict and she accidentally overdosed in 2016. Um, three days before Christmas. Leading up to that, she had been in about 20 or so rehabs for the last, you know, the two years leading up to that. My youngest son was born in 2014. And about three months after she was born, um, after he was born, my daughter, Emily, was um, just not acting right. She was isolating herself, taking my car. It would come up bang banged up. She would lie and say somebody else did it. And then I noticed alcohol in her room. I wanted her to, well, really it was a choice of ride the bus to school or go to rehab. 
And she chose rehab, which I thought was a very interesting choice because I'd ride the bus, but whatever. Um, she, um, from age 12 and beyond, had become a little bit, I don't want to say mentally, mentally ill. And actually, now I'll go back to the beginning because Emily has always had mental stuff and like if you're a kid that does not have mental stuff and you grow up and have a kid that does have mental stuff it's very obvious because you know how a normal person is supposed to behave and you know at first it was like little quirks so like when she so first of all um from birth to age i'll say five if anyone's saying happy birthday anywhere in the vicinity of her she would have a full-on panic attack and scream no happy birthday she did not like the attention at all and then um, in kindergarten, her teacher told me that she always had to, she, she was worried about Emily's self-esteem, which is laughable because she loves herself. But um, she was um, insisting on being in the back of the line when they would line up and she wouldn't talk in class. And she said it was because she didn't like people staring at the back of her head. So I'm me. I'm a very not shy person. Her father, I hate admitting this, was an, was an ex-pro wrestler. So no shyness happening in, in ge- genetically, right? Like there's no reason why I would have a kid that would be afraid for people to stare at her head. It just was like a, a quirk, right? Um, and then around fifth grade, she decided she would only wear black, which is odd, I think, for a 10, 11 year old. And then at 12, she was having some behavioral issues where um, she, well, she started be- like pretending to be other personas and other people like she would say she was a southern belle even though she'd never been to the south ever um it's not totally random her father her grandmother was from the south and she was sort of like taking on that persona or um she would say you know that she lived in the ghetto which is ridiculous um she made herself out to be some type of like juvenile delinquent i guess she was like trying it on at one point, she was like a juggalo. Do you know what that is? You might be too young for that. Do you know what that is? There's this group called, um, there's a musical group called Insane Clown Posse where people like paint their faces in terrible clown makeup and like act like they're a family and drink Fago. It's literally the dumbest thing in the world. And I mean, I thought maybe as a punishment, she would grow up and listen to country music. I never thought it would be something this stupid. But regardless, she went through that phase. Um, she went through, you know, boyfriends that were like, I, I felt like she would like, put out an ad for the most juvenile delinquent kid she could find and date that kid or, you know, just to like torture me and her father and her stepfather. Um, but when she was 12, her grandmother, so when she would, she, her dad and I um, split custody and she lived with me half the time, then she would go to his house for a week. And there was a while there where he was having um, drinking problem, marijuana, you know, some substance abuse. And, and he lived with his mother, the grandmother who was from the South. And um, one day she decided she was just going to move to Florida. And that's really when Emily's stuff like started happening, like talking about being a Southern belle for a little while. She was wearing pearls and cardigans, which I thought was amusing. And then, you know, like then she was would dress like a dude sometimes. And I mean, it was, she was all over the place. Um, and then later she started to, you know, like I said, I, I had to send her to rehab because her behavior was just out of control. Um, she was constantly talking about moving to Florida to live with her grandmother, which of course, I mean, you know, what grandmother wants to a teenage daughter 3000 miles away from her parents? Like, no, thank you. Um, but she went to rehab here in Pennsylvania 
And at the end of it, they said, you know, there's this, re, you know, there's this like step down rehabilitation program in Florida and we'd love to send her. They get a kickback. Most rehabs get a kickback if they send you to these like healing type places. But she was only 17. But because the doctor or her counselor advised us to do it, we did it. It was a huge mistake. She was in Florida on her own. Um, she was in the step, you know, she was in the step down program for about three weeks, but she has a terrible time following the rules. So she kept like showing up without her shoes on. Um, and then she got kicked out of the um, the place. She went to a halfway house where she was sort of left to her own devices too much. So she ends up, I don't want to say relapsing, but she ends up taking up more drug, different drugs. She has people teaching her how to do different things. And in, and she says it's because she never had any credibility in rehab because she was only an alcoholic, which is stupid. But anyway, so um, so she starts doing more drugs. Um, she also has several instances where she meets a boy. She's very beautiful, um, which means she could really get boys to do whatever she wanted them to do. So like there were a couple different instances where she would end up in the car with a boy who was like ready to take her to where her grandmother lived in Tampa and they would just live there happily ever after. This was like every boy she met. It was like three times where I would get a call from a boy. Okay, well, we're going to Tampa. Do you know the address? I'm like, you're not, you're not. This is, I'm like, you're just one in a long line of many. The grandmother is not expecting her. You cannot go move there. This is all, you know, and she would get very angry and upset. And then she'd end up going back into rehab again. So after one of these times, so, so there were a lot of rehabs, like I said, and that's a, that is a function of the mental health system, because when you're an addict, you, your, your insurance will approve a 30 day rehab. And then some insurances approve it a second time and some don't. Sometimes you have to relapse in order to get treatment again. So you never really get better. And especially if you um, do heroin, which she wasn't doing at first, but eventually got into. Um, heroin is the kind of thing where like you need way more than 30 days, especially if you're a young person, because not only do you have this, you know, strong, strong addiction that you need to fight, but you also have no idea how to function in the real world after hustling for drugs and being high all the time. So like Emily had never even been to summer camp, so she didn't graduate high school. So now she had to attempt those things, you know, like finishing high school, getting a job that all had to happen after being an addict, which I mean, as you can imagine, affects your self-esteem. So after one or two of these times, I started Googling, like, why isn't she getting better? Because I felt like, you know, these personalities, the Southern Belle, like they were getting worse as she, you know, each rehab knew a different Emily. Sometimes she would use a different name. She said she was from Boston and kept up an accent for a couple of weeks. She said she was a twin in one of these places. It just got crazier and crazier. So I started Googling, uh, as you do, and I found the... I mean, you know, of course it leads you to like manic depressive bipolar, but then I saw something about borderline personality disorder, which is technically what borderline means is that not that you're borderline crazy, but that you live on the border between anxiety and anger all the time. But it also means you don't have a, it's a weird comorbidity, but it's like, you don't have a good sense of self. So people with borderline do try on personalities like hats because they don't really know who they are. So they're like, 
oh, you're this, I'll be that too. You're this, I'll be that too. It's like almost their way of relating to people. Um, they're also very, very codependent. So this is also probably her way of like sticking herself in someone's pocket for a little while to feel safe. Um, so it's pretty sad. So she got sicker and sicker. Then she was sober. And then she, you know, around Christmas time, she was getting, she wanted to come home. We wouldn't let her. She'd been sober about seven months and she relapsed one time and her body just couldn't take it. And she, and she passed away. She died of an overdose. I'm so sorry for your loss and for the struggle. Yeah. And it always seemed like, it. I mean, she always seemed to have this like plan. She never had aspirations of doing like, you know, little kids, they grow up and they dream of doing this or that. She just never had that. I mean, her things were like, first it was a tattoo artist and whatever she would, I always thought she was naming stuff to make me crazy. Right. Cause like, do I want my Jewish daughter to be a tattoo artist? Not particularly. So then I would make fun of her choices, which would piss her. So I would just say, so you're going to have your face in someone's armpit every day. That sounds really fun. Good luck with that. Right. And then she said she wanted to be a stripper. She was like 12. So I would say like, well, you have no boobs and you can't dance. So how's that going to work? She's the worst dancer. So she was like, you know, I would deter her for a little while, but I could, you know, I just felt like this life of um, going against the rules or becoming whatever it was that she wanted to become. Like it felt inevitable for both me and my, and her stepfather. We both were like, She's only going to do what she wants. And it seems all she wants to do is self-destruct. And you just have to watch that person do it no matter what, how you try. And before this happened to me, I used to think that parents of heroin addicts just weren't working hard enough. They were neglected or they were not controlling enough. But I'll tell you what, that is, I mean, I could not have been more controlling. I controlled everything I possibly could. I took away money. I took away her phone. I put bugs in her phone so I could track where she was. Um, Kids want to self-destruct, they will. Um, so the answer to your question about how it affected my life was, I mean, probably how it af- would affect any life in that, you know, you you grieve that person that you gave birth to and the person you took care of and you wonder where you went wrong or why it had to be this way. Um, I also have been pregnant with her. Like I got pregnant with her when I was 21. I had her at 22 and then her brother at 23. So I've never been an adult without being her mother and mothering her. So it was a little bit also of like a, an identity crisis. Um, she was a full-time job, especially in those last couple of years, but she was a full-time job even before that. I mean, she was always getting in trouble or having a, a, you know, a pretend fight with someone or being a victim of something in her head, or she was just a lot of work. So having that space, that mind space was unnerving. Um, And it wasn't that I missed those phone calls. I didn't. And it wasn't that I, what you miss is the hope that they'll get better. That's the thing you lose really. I mean, because losing your kid is complicated at first. You're mad at them. You're mad at yourself. You are mad at every doctor that's, you know, set her free on the way. And it's a lot more than that, but like, but also like, who am I supposed to be if I'm not running her life? What what am I going to do with this headspace? And it actually is part of why I started the, it's another reason why I wanted to do the event. Like, I know that I was asked that question and it hit me all at once, but it also was the first time I felt like I had the, um, 
the headspace to do something like that. In the years leading up to that, when I went to podcasting conferences, those were the times that she would be the sickest. She would run away. She would relapse. She would cause mayhem when I was gone. Um, so now I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have to worry about Emily causing chaos while I was doing my own event in, you know, wherever I was going to be. Um, and I thought it would help a lot of people. And I think that, you know, I don't think that God has a reason for why those things happen. They just happen uh, because we have free will. But I do think that we who are the recipients of tragedy can make that tragedy a catalyst for something good. So that's kind of what I thought I was doing. Emily has gone. My headspace is clear. I can now create something that will help people, that people will enjoy, something I couldn't do before. I couldn't travel. I couldn't do a big event. I couldn't focus that hard on anything. And, and now that I can, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to say, well, she died. So this event could happen. Cause that is also horse pucky, but, um, but this event can happen and, and it is a result of me having the space to do it and needing something to do. Does that make sense? Any of that? Yeah, it makes sense. But also I hear a little bit and I'm not a therapist at it's all, fine. but from what I'm hearing is it's not her fault or your fault. You you mentioned signs of mental illness, and that is something that comes directly from God. That's not something you can control or Emily could have controlled. Mm -hmm. So, right, when you said God <laughs> doesn't do things for a reason, like that was done to you. Yeah. It's a series of unfortunate events, right? Like, like would it have happened if her grandmother hadn't moved away? Would it have happened if her father and I had stayed married, which was never going to happen? I mean, would it have happened if can go through your head a million times, but yeah, you're, you're right. Like the gene of mental illness is either triggered or it's not. And I can say that it was triggered when her grandmother ran away or uh, ran away, <laughs> moved away. But that doesn't explain why she was so kooky as a kid with like not wanting her head to be looked at or not being able to go to the bathroom by herself or go to a buffet by herself because she was too weirded out about people looking at her like that's a that's a that's not like a that's not a cute quirk that's it, now that I look back on it that's like a a psychological quirk that I probably should have paid more you know the only thing is she was very artistic so like I was trying to give creative leeway with the personalities like, I didn't know that that was borderline personality disorder I thought she was just being funny or silly she was very funny and silly she was hilarious and had a great sense of humor and she was very artistic and um, yeah, I don't think that she, I don't think that she was meant to be here that long or maybe even at all. It's sort of like, I don't know. It depends on how much you believe. And, and, and like, I don't mean to make up spiritual things, but I do believe that, you know, our souls choose to come when they come and leave when they leave, or, you know, maybe they don't, but my understanding is that her soul got here and went, Whoa, <laughs> we're not ready for this yet this feels weird and then from that moment to the moment she died was just discomfort whatever form it took you know and people who suffer with mental illness for a short period or a long period of time i kind of think that that's part of it they just are not comfortable on the this plane for whatever reason either they're meant to be here they're not meant to be here that part doesn't even matter it's just 
it's just not comfortable if you're not comfortable on earth as a human being, you know? And I think, and I, I mean, and I have sort of evidence to that for her. Um, then I don't know that I necessarily believe in psychics or being able to speak to people who have passed, but um, I do have friends that claim that can do that, who have assured me that she um, is her better self now that she's not here, that she's not suffering, that she's, you know, a soul that does what she's, you know, here she loved helping other people and doing things like that. And like the people who claim that they can, that they have those skills have told me that she is doing the thing she was, you know, meant to do just wasn't meant to be here. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I just want to validate you and I'm not trying to. (laughs) Yeah. You're not judging me. I know. I understand. I can't, I mean, and I can't say if it's true or not either because I don't have those skills. I have no evidence that it exists. I can say that the people I've spoken to that say they've spoken to her have said things that, you know, only my, you know, in a certain way that only my daughter spoke do you know what I mean? Like she had a certain way of talking and saying things. And it was like identical to something she would say. Like, for example, whenever she would trip or something, she would go, oops, I made a mistake. Um, and so that, that came through when I, you know, from, for those people without knowing, like, how would they know? Unless they saw a video of her doing that specific thing. So stuff like that. Um, but yeah, thank you for validating that. Even though I have no idea if it's valid or not. Um, I have comfort that, I mean, I'm comforted in that I don't need to worry about her, her effect on her brothers, her effect on my marriage, my bank account, my parents. Um, She was like Hurricane Emily in a lot of ways. She, she did a lot of destruction while she was here and um, yeah, got old. I'm definitely not into drama now. I mean, any drama that comes sauntering by gets a good kick in the pants from me. That's not, no drama comes around these parts. I'll tell you what. I have had my lifetimes full of drama. Well, I really appreciate you opening up and sharing with us. Thank you. No matter how many times you speak about it, when you go down memory lane, it it's not the most pleasant experience at times. So thank you for doing it with us, for us. You're very, very welcome. I hope that it helps people. I mean, I think I would just say if you you're a parent and you have a kid that you are unsure about go with that feeling. Don't nurture it and brush it off as creativity. Um, you know, you know, if something's not right and you should act on it because I wish I had done that a lot sooner. Sending so much love. If anyone listening would like to attend, she podcast live. We'll post the link. It's in the show notes Make sure to check out She Podcast, the Facebook group, and the podcast. Well, I'm happy we did this. And Me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. I love talking to you, and I'm super excited to see you in Arizona. Thank you. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you have comments or feedback, make sure to reach out to me. If you enjoyed, make sure to subscribe and tell one friend or even two or three. I'd really appreciate it. Have an amazing week and make sure to tune in next week for another awesome episode.
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 